Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. like to welcome everyone to episode seven season two of criminology morph how are you doing now that we're past the halfway point i'm doing good and i'm looking forward to the rest of the season well i know it's been a lot of work to get us up to this point and we have a lot more work ahead of us but we've got some great episodes to come all right morph we've got some new patreon shout outs that we have to give we had mary shock Jeanette Butler Fergie, which I'm really digging that name, <laughs> Tammy Green, Leanne Hippensteel, who I know is a, a, a TCAT supporter as well, so appreciate that. We have Bob Mio Martino and Andrea Canfield. So amazing support on Patreon. We appreciate it. It really, really goes a long way towards us being able to put out these episodes. Yeah, we can't thank you guys enough. Your support is, is really, really appreciated. And, you know, moving forward, as you talk about us on social media, that really helps us out, too. So even if you can't help with the Patreon, just going on social media and talking about criminology really helps us out. So thank you. All right, Morf, we're less than a month away from CrimeCon. We're excited. We've been talking about it. Can't wait to, you know, meet up with, fans of criminology if you're on the fence if you haven't made that decision just do it you know go to crimecon.com sign up use our promo code criminology you're going to get 10 percent off your standard badge and i promise you you will not regret going to crimecon it is a blast the last thing we want to touch on is we're getting a little bit closer to our book being published based on season one of criminology And that's all about the Zodiac case. The book is called Criminology True Crime Podcast Presents The Case of the Zodiac Killer. You can pre-order the Kindle version by visiting Amazon, or you can go to our publishing partner in this venture, Wild Blue Press. Just go to wildbluepress.com forward slash Zodiac pre-orders. And Wild Blue Press has some great true crime books. As a special offer to listeners of Criminology, Wild Blue Press is offering a free audiobook download. All you have to do is go to wildbluepress.com forward slash audio dash books. And more, if I know we've mentioned this, but, you know, one of the things that we're striving to do with this podcast is to spread awareness of this case and hopefully generate some tips. So we want to keep giving out the information for anyone that thinks that they may have a tip or you know, any type of information that they think may help, you know, contact the FBI tip line by calling 1-800-CALL-FBI. So just to do a quick recap of episode six, we heard from Detective Sergeant Ken Clark of the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department, who discussed a possible lead in the case that he's been working on lately. And then we wrapped up the episode by including an in-depth interview with victim number 27, Margaret, 
she was such an awesome guest and her story is amazing. I can't tell you how many messages and emails we got about her. It was so great having her on to tell her own story about her attack on November 10th, 1977 on La Riviera Drive in Sacramento. The few weeks following Margaret's attack were largely uneventful. There were no reported East Area Rapist attacks. One of the East Area Rapists' many victims mailed in a rather moving letter to the Sacramento Bee. This letter was in response to an article that the Bee had previously run about the East Area Rapist. As a recent victim of the East Area Rapist, I read with interest your July 3rd article, Rape Case Conflict, on the disagreement between local police and the Rape Crisis Center. According to your article, the Rape Crisis Center and its supporters claim that police agencies too often are insensitive to the immediate emotional needs of a rape victim. In the immediate aftermath of my attack, the decency and tact of the uniformed officers played a large part in helping to keep myself glued together. I am deeply grateful to them all. A uniformed lady officer was summoned immediately, and shortly afterward, Detective Carol Daly. At no time was I made to feel that the need for police information was being put above my well-being, or that the emotional pain of my experience was being disregarded. In the days after the incident, Detective Daly showed great concern for my well-being. More than anyone else, she seemed to understand my feelings, and I never spoke with her without feeling better afterward. On the other hand, I am still ambivalent about my talks with the women at the Rape Crisis Center. Several times they made the comment that other rape victims were feeling insignificant and out of the ballpark because their assailant was not the East Area Rapist and they were presumably not getting the same level of attention that I was. After just being raped, robbed, terrorized, and having the lives of my husband and child threatened, it left me confused to hear from a counselor that other women were envious of the circumstances of my attack. However innocently the comment was made, it hurt badly. The women at the Rape Crisis Center are very well-intentioned, and I do not want to appear to bite the hand that tried to help me. But I do believe these women have some very ingrained political orientations that affect their attitudes toward victims and the police. These attitudes need to be re-examined. Regarding the anti-police comment of Ted Sheedy, it is certainly a shame that a man could hold county office for so long and still be totally ignorant of the workings of his local law enforcement agencies. If local politicians... TV commenters and rape counselors were half as dedicated and professional as our police, Sacramento would be in really good shape. But until such a fine day arrives, here is my advice to any Sacramento woman who is raped. Call the police immediately. Then, call your two closest girlfriends. Rape victim, Sacramento. That letter to the editor was read by Nina of Already Gone Podcast another one of our friends who helped us this season by lending her voice to help tell the story of this monster. We really appreciate her help, and we hope you will check out her podcast. And that's one of the things, Morph, that I really think is amazing about the true crime podcast community. Everybody is out to help everybody else. So, you know, if you reach out to somebody like Lainey from True Crime Fan Club, you reach out to Nina from Already Gone, and, and there's other people that have helped us. The first thing they say is, heck yeah, I'm going to help you. I, I just think that is so amazing. And it's what makes this 
true crime podcast community so special? So we're up to December of 1977, almost a month since the last East Area Rapist attack on Margaret. On December 2nd, the Sacramento Police Department received the following call. So just to help transcribe that audio, the sheriff's department answered the phone with what sounds like police department sheriff speaking. Then a male caller says, you're never going to catch me. I'm the East area rapist. You dumb fuckers. I'm going to fuck again tonight. Be careful. When this call came in, police didn't know what to make of it. And they had no way of knowing if the call was really from the East Area Rapist or simply just a prank call. Later that night, a woman on the 5900 block of Revelstock Way in Sacramento settled in the bed for the night. Her husband had gone out for the night with some friends and her teenage son was sleeping at a friend's house. So this woman decided to allow her six-year-old daughter to sleep in bed with her. She went to sleep at about 1130, but not long after falling asleep, just before midnight, she was awakened by a noise that she assumed was her cat. She ignored it, but heard it again, and then rolled over to the sight of a masked man shining a light in her eyes. The masked man whispered to the woman, telling her to get up. Almost defiantly, she asked him why. The man replied, get up and come with me, or I'll hurt your little boy. So this intruder had mistaken her daughter for a boy. Once the woman stood up, she saw that he had a black pair of shoelaces, but she didn't see a weapon. He forced her to walk down the hallway into the living room and then forced her to her knees before tying her with the shoelaces. The woman started to cry and the assailant threatened to gag her. She begged the attacker not to and told her she would be quiet. She wanted to not be gagged in case her daughter got up. That way she'd be able to tell her to go back to bed. The masked man agreed, and he didn't gag her, and he also did not blindfold her. Noise outside caught the attacker's attention. There were a group of teenagers playing in the street in front of the home. The man was distracted by them, and he kept peeking outside the window at them. As she lay on the floor, the assailant walked by her a few times. He was talking to her, or maybe to himself, and said, You think you're smart, but I'm smarter. After a few moments, the house was silent. Outside, the woman heard what sounded like a loud van start up and then drive away. She waited a few minutes, then she got up and went to her phone where she called a neighbor for help. Thankfully, as in some of the other East Area Rapist cases, the child slept through the entire event. Police were called and they arrived after midnight on December 3rd and started their investigation. This woman, compared to some other East Area Rapist victims, had escaped relatively unharmed. The thinking is that the intruder had been so nervous about the teenagers outside that he decided to abort the attack. Police questioned the woman, and she told him that her attacker was white and sounded as if he was in his 20s. He was under six feet tall and had a thin build. He spoke through clenched teeth. They were able to determine that the point of entry was the family room window, which had been pried. The victim was able to determine that the intruder hadn't stolen anything. She did tell police that in the weeks leading up to her attack, 
she received several hang-up phone calls that almost always came after 2 p.m. Police then questioned neighbors, but they wanted to start with the group of teenagers that were gathered on the street out in front of the victim's home. After speaking with them, they verified that none of them had seen anything unusual. One person, however, spotted an out-of-place white station wagon with black tires that was parked across the street from the victim's home around midnight. Other residents close by reported that in the spring of that year, they had received a call from a man whispering, you are next. One neighbor reported seeing an out-of-place blue van in the area with a Sacramento Army decal on it, and this was just a week or so before the attack. Another neighbor saw a beige-colored station wagon in front of the victim's home a few days before the attack. And there were other unknown men and prowlers spotted in the area in the days leading up to the attack. All of this was typical activity leading up to an East Area rapist attack. Police learned that in late August, a nearby home had been burglarized. The thief had made off with two photos of the homeowners and their typewriter, not the typical things a burglar would take. The call placed earlier the day of the attack to police in which somebody claimed to be the East Area rapist may have been legit. He threatened that he would attack that night, and he did. Thankfully, this woman escaped an attack which could have been a lot more serious. This aborted attack seemed to drive home the fact that the East Area Rapist was all about self-preservation. If things didn't go right, or weren't going as planned, or something seemed off, then he simply aborted the attack. In this case, the noisy teenagers outside had made him nervous enough to take off. For weeks after this attack, throughout December of 1977, and in early January of 1978, the East Area Rapist focus seemed to shift away from attacking in person toward harassing people over the phone. On December 9th, the 21st victim that we talked about in episode 5 received a phone call from someone she thought was the same man who had raped her. The next day on December 10th, a man called into the Sacramento Police Department and said, I am going to hit tonight. And then he indicated that it was going to be on what avenue. But there were no attacks that night. The next day on December 11th, very close to what avenue, a man riding a bicycle and wearing a ski mask was witnessed by police and they chased after him. The man ditched the bike and outran police on foot. Police traced the bicycle and found that it had been stolen in Redding, California, 150 miles away. On December 12th, multiple copies of what may have been the first written communication from the East Area Rapist were received by Sacramento's mayor's office, the Sacramento Bee, and a local Sacramento television station. The communication came in the form of a typed poem entitled, Excitement's Crave. All those mortals surviving birth, upon facing maturity, take inventory of their worth to prevailing society. Choosing values becomes a task. Oneself must seek satisfaction. The selected route will unmask character when plans take action. Accepting some work to perform at fixed pay, but promise for more, is a recognized social norm, as is decorum, seeking lore. 
Achieving while others lifting should be cause for deserving fame. Leisure tempts excitement seeking. What's right and expected seems tame. Jesse James has been seen by all, and son of Sam has an author. Others now feel temptation's call. Sacramento should make an offer. To make a movie of my life that will pay for my planned exile. Just now I'd like to add the wife of a mafia lord to my file. Your East Area Rapist and Deserving Pest. See you on the press or on TV. And we just wanted to give a quick shout out to our friend Michael, who hosts a couple of podcasts, Unresolved, and a new podcast called Hoax. And we definitely encourage you to check out his shows. Please search these mailings for clues that might lead to the author of the poem. They uncovered a palm print on one of the letters that has never been matched to anyone. And it would be determined that the typewriter used to create the poem was the same exact make and model of typewriter we mentioned earlier as being stolen from a home leading up to the most recent attack. Also interesting was the fact that the poem mentioned, quote, wife of a mafia lord, which may have been in reference to the 21st victim and her husband who were Italian. Later, in December of 1977, police got a good lead that they were interested in. A man who matched many of the East Area Rapist descriptions had been coming into a 7-Eleven store located at 10721 Coloma Road in Rancho Cordova. He came in almost daily, either late at night or early in the morning. He would walk to the back of the store and loiter as he read adult magazines. Police took it seriously enough that they decided to set up a stakeout. The officer that had a part in making the stakeout happen was Ted Daly, who was Carol Daly's husband. Of course, you've heard Detective Carol Daly on this season. Ted Daly ordered two officers to go to the 7-Eleven. One was to sit outside in an unmarked police car. The other would go inside the store and wait in a back room for the man to come in. Once the man came in, the police were supposed to approach the man, question him, and learn his identity. However, Things did not go as planned, according to Detective Richard Shelby. I talked to Ted Daly, the, the sergeant. Today they call it SWAT. Then it was SED, Selective Enforcement Detail. By word of mouth, basically, he found out about this guy that would hang out in at 7-Eleven about 2 every morning and stand there and look at the little girly books back in the corner. Well, he put two officers out there, and he said, go in the back room, you know, stake it out. Go in there in civilian clothes. One of them sat outside in the squad car, which I thought was smart. The other one put a shirt over his uniform, I guess. I don't know what kind of shirt he had on. But he wasn't wearing the uniform. The dumb shit was wearing his uniform pants. And he was back there in the back room. He'd come out and get coffee on occasion. And then uh, the clerk got a phone call, so let me talk to the cop in the back. And he said, there's no cop. The guy said, something, you know, don't give me that. So when the, the cop came out and picked up the phone, the guy just laughed at him and hung up. And then the suspect never turned up again. This seemed like a really good lead. But like many other leads in this case, police couldn't capitalize on it. The man that they were looking for was thought to live very close to the 7-Eleven, maybe in one of the nearby apartment complexes on Coloma Road. But he never came back in the store. But during that month of December, another victim, the eighth victim, also received a call that they thought was from the East Area Rapist. Then Christmas passed, as did New Year's, but on January 2nd of 1978, 
that's the day that the very first victim received the sinister phone call. And we played that in episode one, but we needed to play it again just to remind everyone how scary that phone call was. And you can imagine how afraid that victim must have been receiving that phone call. Fortunately, this call was recorded and it was later played for other victims of the East Area Rapists that had received similar calls. They all agreed that this was the voice of the man that had raped them. Four days later, on January 6th, a counseling service volunteer received a phone call from a man who claimed that he was the East Area Rapist. The caller claimed that he had been treated on and off at the Stockton State Hospital. He also accused the counselor of tracing his call and hung up. Later, on January 20th, at around 5.20 to 5.30 a.m., two different East Area Rapist victims received phone calls that were identical in nature. The caller said to each of them, I have not struck in a while. You will be my next victim. I'm going to come over and fuck you in the butt. See you soon. Now, these calls, although frightening and terrorizing, they were just that. They were calls. But assuming that they were from the East Area Rapist, it proved that he was still terrorizing, but not in person. It had been two months with no East Area Rapist attack. But that would change on January 28th when the East Area Rapist would strike on the 4300 block of College View Way in Carmichael. And this attack would be one of the most despicable in the series because the East Area Rapist would attack and rape two teenage sisters. Just a couple weeks before, the mother of these two girls had witnessed a man running from their garage. When she investigated, she found that some tools were missing. Over the next two weeks, these two girls, who were La Sierra High School students aged 14 and 15, received odd calls from a man they didn't know. They described the man as having a funny voice, and during these calls, he would ask if their mom was home. On January 28th, at about 7 p.m., the girls' parents left to go to a concert. The sisters stayed at home and went to bed at around 10 p.m. Between 10.30 and 11 p.m., The older sister was awakened by a thump, followed by a voice in her room. 
the startled girl sat up and she saw a man in a mask standing in her doorway holding a flashlight. The intruder told her to get all of her money or he would kill her. As her eyes adjusted to the light, she could see that the man was holding a gun. She turned over to get some cash that she kept close to her bed. It was about $60. She handed the money to the man after he approached her. He then ordered her to go wake up her sister. The older sister escorted the man into her younger sister's room, at which point the hooded man shook the younger sister, waking her up. He told her as soon as she was awake, don't look at me or I'll kill you. He then ordered her to give him cash as well. He forced the girls to lie down on the bed face down. He bound their hands tightly behind their backs with shoelaces. He then asked the pair when their parents would be home. They told the attacker that they were due home at midnight. The man threatened them with a knife, telling them that if they were lying, he would kill them both and then kill their parents when they came home. The attacker left the girls bound on the bed and went to look through the house, going through several drawers in the process. He later returned, and this is when the unthinkable happened. He placed his lubricated penis into the older girl's hands and then moved to the younger sister doing the same exact thing. And again, Morph, we're not going to go into every detail of this attack, but the attacker raped both sisters while they laid next to each other. And the East Area Rapist has done so many disgusting things up to this point. And just when you think that this monster can't get any more depraved, he goes and does something like this. During the attack, he covered one victim's head with a sweater and the other with a pillow. After the sexual attack, the man stood up and warned the girls not to talk to each other. He told them that he would kill them if they did. He asked them where their parents kept their money, and they told the man that it was on top of their dresser. The man went to their bedroom to grab the cash, but came back very quickly. And he started to speak in a rather whimpering voice, telling them that he couldn't find the money. Then, in the same whimpering voice, he told them, I don't want to do this anymore. She's making me do it. The man walked out of the room, and the house became quiet. The two sisters were not sure if he was still there, so they remained still until 11.30 p.m. when they heard their parents walk into the house. And I can't imagine this morph as a parent coming home to find my two daughters in this state. It, to me, it's unimaginable. The parents freed the girls and immediately called the police. Police arrived just before midnight and started their investigation. They determined that the point of entry was the front door, which had been kicked in. Before being taken to Sacramento Medical Center for treatment, the sisters were able to describe their attackers being five foot seven to five foot nine, thin to medium build with a small penis. They thought he might be in his 30s. Police felt that he may have been in the house for only 30 minutes or so, and perhaps was scared off by the arrival of the girl's parents. As Mike said, Attacking and raping two sisters side by side just adds another disgusting element to the East Area Rapist. And the fact that he simply kicked the door open to get to these two girls shows that this attack was more rushed and not calculated like some of the other attacks before. Four days later, on February 2nd, 1978, on the 10,000 block of La Alegria Drive, a young couple was shot and killed. 
A 21-year-old Air Force sergeant and his 20-year-old wife were shot to death Thursday night as they walked their dog on a quiet residential street in Rancho Cordova. Dead are Sergeant Brian K. Maggiore, an administrative specialist with the Security Police Squadron at nearby Mather Air Force Base and Katie Maggiore. They resided in Rancho Cordova and are from the Fresno area. Sheriff's homicide detectives said the young victims were slain as they attempted to escape from their attacker by running into the backyard of a residence. According to detectives, a neighbor reported he heard the woman scream for help and then saw a tall man leap over a fence and flee. The couple was found mortally wounded in the backyard of a home at 10165 La Alegria Drive at 9.10 p.m. The man, shot through the chest by a slug that passed through the back of his neck, died at 11.14 p.m. in the Sacramento Medical Center. His wife, shot in the head, died 20 minutes later. William Miller, assistant to the sheriff, reported the two apparently fled into the backyard from a street behind a house on La Gloria Way. A portion of the back fence had been blown down at the La Alegria address by a recent storm, making the backyard accessible from La Gloria. Nicholas Ottlinger, who lived at the slang scene, said he first heard screams and then a bullet crashed through the pane window. He said the slug missed him by about four inches. Odlinger said, quote, I threw my wife to the floor and we just stayed there for a while. A 17-year-old boy who lived two doors down from Otlinger said he heard two shots and ran outside. He said he heard three more shots and the sound of someone scaling a fence. The suspect ran within a few feet of the boy, detectives said, and when the man turned toward him, the boy fled. Miller said the couple was attempting to escape from their assailant, but investigators have been unable to learn why. The man had nearly reached the back patio when he was shot. His wife, who neighbors heard yelling, help me, ran another 60 or 80 feet along the side of the house and had reached the front gate before being gunned down. The killer vaulted a front fence and was seen running away by a neighbor who described him as white in his mid-twenties, six feet to six feet two inches tall, a slight build, short dark hair, and wearing a brown leather coat with a large stain on the back and dark pants and shoes. The couple's dog was found alive in a swimming pool on the property behind the La Allegria Drive residence that fronts on La Gloria. Investigators speculated the small dog must have fled into the pool in the darkness during the shooting. That article was from the February 3rd Sacramento Bee, and it detailed how the young couple, Brian and Katie Majori, had been gunned down. The Majoris were newlyweds. At the time of their murders, they had been married for about 18 months. Brian was a young security policeman in the Air Force. He and Katie were awaiting orders to go overseas, something the young couple was excited about. The couple had taken their dog Thumper, a poodle, out for a walk. The Majoris lived in an apartment on La Verda Court, just a short distance away from where they were shot. Their murder seemed random, but it also appeared that the killer had gone out of his way after shooting Brian to make sure that he also killed Katie. These senseless murders shocked their families. Katie's brother, Ken Smith, told us about how his family got the news and how it affected them, not just immediately following the murders, but for the rest of their lives. I was in high school at the time, so my dad, the Air Force, actually sent somebody to his place of business and informed him, and then they escorted him, took him over to where my mom worked for Fresno Unified School District, and they picked her up and, and told her, and then they picked Keith up at school, and then they came to the, the high school where I was going to school at and had me pulled out and, and uh, told me about it. That weekend prior to it happening, we had just seen them. They had come down to ta- uh, into town from Sacramento. My sister turned 20 January 29th, so three days before it happened. 
Um, so we were down, you know, they came down to celebrate her birthday. But I was, we had talked to them on the phone the night that it did happen. When this all happened, they had just moved like a week, week or so prior. The whole thing was just devastating to the, to our family. And like I said, our family didn't talk about it much and almost withdrew probably from each other because of it. And I think it, you know, put a, a heavy burden that, that all of us have been, you know, left to deal with for quite some time now. Um, but Kate and Brian were just a, a wonderful, happy young couple. Um, Brian, you couldn't ask for a better guy. You know, he was a wonderful person. And Katie was always a happy-go-lucky, uh, outgoing personality, you know, that just was always just fun. I mean, her and I were really, really close. And so it was very difficult for me. I had a hard time with it even to this day. Uh, one of the things that bothers me the most is the fact that not, not only did it, you know, were we cheated of, of a life, you know, together of, as far as, I mean, you know, her being 20 and I was 16, but her not getting to meet my, you know, my family. So I have three kids and two grandbabies and they, you know, they never met her. Ken went on to detail for us what investigators were thinking at the time. At the time, there was a lot of different information floating around out there probably 98% of it very inaccurate, I would, I would say. Um, you know, my family didn't speak about it much, so they would not come to me and tell me anything about what was going on. If I found out anything that was going on, it was kind of, you know, overhearing a conversation um, with somebody else. So it, it was kept really, you know, hush-hush. But I, there were a lot of rumors that, that went around at the time. One positive thing to come out of the investigation of Brian and Katie's murder was that there was actually multiple witnesses that filled in what happened at the time of the murders. One of those witnesses named Carl was 17 at the time, and he sat down with us to tell us what he could remember about the events of that night, events that occurred over 41 years ago. My name is Carl Walsh. I grew up in Rancho Cordova, California, and uh, I was involved with the East Area Rapist case when a shooting occurred two doors down from me uh, when I lived in Rancho Cordova uh, on La Alegria Street. And, and uh, being a, I was one of the few witnesses of the perpetrator is how I got involved with the, with the case. And and uh, I've been uh, recently been, been contacted, and I've been trying to help out uh, any way I can, even though it's been 40 years. I'd like to help any way I can to, to solve the case. It was, a February, it was a February evening. I think it was around 7-something at night. But I was, uh, I was a 17-year-old teenager, lived with my folks on La Allegria Street. My, I had a, ba- a bedroom that was in the back of the house. And... Um, we, in, in California, all the, uh, the track homes have uh, wooden fences in their backyard. It's, it's not uncommon to, uh, to have a lot of fences blow down with a heavy storm and wind. And I remember, I remember sitting in my room, and I heard some, some banging of fences, like somebody was, was uh, trying to break down a fence or something to that effect. And I heard a a couple loud, uh, loud uh, bangs, uh, not not really knowing what it was, um, and so I, I walked out of the, the front of the house of the garage uh, onto our driveway, and then I was as I was walking out there, uh, I it was a it was a winter night, but it, it, it was clear, um, 
And uh, in Sacramento, we have a thing called Thule fog uh, in the uh, in the winter, often where it's very dense fog. But it was a very clear night, and uh, it was dark, but there was there was enough light from from porches that you could uh, you get get a good good look at what was going on. I remember walking out there, and I heard I heard a couple more, two three short more shots, and, and uh, maybe a scream. Um, and uh, I, I looked uh, to the left, uh, and, and then I heard uh, I heard a, a kind of a scrambling of, of somebody trying to trying to climb a fence, um, and then and then somebody falling into maybe some bushes and some scrambling, and then and then um, and then the perpetrator um, uh, actually the Otlinger's residence is where the the incident occurred. Um, after he committed the the crime, he he uh, the gate was locked, um, and uh, he so he had to climb the fence. To the gate was right by the uh, the driveway, and there was a there was kind of a uh, a small alleyway between the fence next door and the house, and uh, that's where he I guess shot the second person, and and he had to scramble over that fence. I heard then I heard somebody running towards towards me and. And uh, the perpetrator, he, he runs out down the street and uh, across uh, our neighbor's lawn, actually, uh, next door to the left. And, and I, had, I had my, we made, made my way out to the front of the house enough where I was near the front of the lawn area. And I was looking at him, and he ran up, uh, uh, you know, within five to ten feet of me next door onto the neighbor's lawn. And uh, at that time, I think he finally – it was dark enough where, where he – he, he didn't really see that there was somebody out there standing out there until they got within 10, 20 feet. And then he stopped and uh, kind of startled, looked at me, and then uh, he turned around and ran back down the opposite way of the street uh, as fast as he could to, uh, to get away from her. And at the same time, my neighbor, Don Morris, on the right, he had he'd come out of the house also because he had heard some, some loud booms. And then, so we both we we both didn't know what was going on. So we so we walked uh, over to the Otlingers because I, I I had seen him hopping over that fence. Uh, I had a direct direct line to the Otlingers uh, gate, and uh, so we walked over there and uh, um, we we had heard we had heard somebody breathing that had been shot uh, in that area, and then it was about that time we finally realized that uh, it had been a shooting. Because uh, it's a it's a nice quiet you know neighborhood in Rancho Cordova and and to expect a couple people that have been uh, uh, been assassinated or murdered next two doors down was uh, was pretty uh, frightening and then and then naturally uh, the the police came and and we did some interviews I got approval for my mom to to go downtown and and uh, uh, the head detective Ray Biondi they did an interview with me. And then, uh, and then I was actually put under hypnosis, and uh, and I helped uh, helped uh, recall some some details, uh, and then and then I worked with a sketch artist uh, also, and and I had some artistic talent, so I was able to uh, uh, kind of give him him some general features of a you know more of a slender guy, longer leg, you know. Uh, five ten to six foot tall, something like that, and it actually helped out with a few renderings. He had he had kind of a light brown bomber jacket type 
on that I had recalled. And when he when he turned to run run away, he had a he had a, a like a, a kind of a large peanut shaped stain on the back of his jacket. And and I and I and I recalled that from hypnosis and I helped sketch that out. I thought he was a little taller. He was slender, kind of a you know athletic type of uh, uh, gait, you know. Um, Nothing, nothing unusual for like a limp or anything, uh, but uh, he, there was a level of franticness from him to to be escaping the uh, the crime scene and then and then running. So, but he, yeah, he he was he seemed to have a longer gait, uh, uh, taller, uh, slender uh, guy, and uh, and uh, moved pretty quick. I thought he had kind of kind of deeper set eyes. And I and I and I have a, I have a vision of some hair, so I don't I I can't recall him having a ski mask. But then uh, I think I, when I, my first part of my interview, he didn't have a mask, and then when I went down to hypnosis, I said he had a mask on. So um, it it's really hard to say. Carl mentioned Ray Biondi as being the detective in charge of the Majori case. Detective Biondi may be familiar with some of our listeners. In the same year the Majoris were murdered. He would go on to catch Sacramento's infamous vampire killer, Richard Trenton Chase. He joined us to discuss the early investigation in the Majority murders. He even read aloud for us from the actual reports that he prepared 41 years ago. On February 2nd, 1978, around 7 o'clock in the evening, it was their nightly routine to walk their dog after dinner each night. Uh, they left their residence, which was an apartment complex, within this uh, suburban neighborhood. About that time, neighbors heard a screaming female and shots, and then more shots. We were called to the scene, and what we determined, the victims were, uh, had already been evacuated from the scene by the time I got there. But what we were able to, to piece together was Brian and Katie were walking on an adjacent street when they were confronted by a gunman. This gunman chased them through the backyard of a, of the residence, and between this residence and the next residence on another street, a fence had blown down because of a high uh, wind in the area. Brian obviously ran around the side of the house that they went into the backyard, and he went to the blind side of the, of the backyard. There was no fence. He was shot there, and in fact, some of the shots fired by the gunman actually went through uh, the glass door of that residence where the people were watching television. Katie, meanwhile, ran to the other side of the residence where there was a gate. It appeared that she tripped on a flower bed there, and that's where the gunman caught up with her and shot her. And that's where the screams uh, could be heard from various neighbors. What was kind of unusual about the crime is it was 7 o'clock in the evening, there was still light, the neighborhood was still very active, I mean, people were out and about. It wasn't like a late middle of night. Why would a gunman confront a couple walking down the street? The uh, neighbors next door to where the crime occurred and others in the area uh, reported numerous sightings of an individual running. 
the one that seemed most interesting, or at least was one of a, a comprehensive compilation of, of many sightings, but generally was a white male, about six foot, six foot two, tall, probably medium build, had a dark blue knit cap with only eyes and nose showing, more like a skier's uh, cap, light brown waist-length jacket with a dark color stain on the lower right side. His jacket was interesting in that there were other sightings where people said that there was a military insignia or patch on the side of the jacket. Others, some described as a brown leather jacket. Most consistently, they were talking about a brown leather jacket and where probably had anywhere from five to seven different people that saw this male running. In one instance, when the neighbor witnessed that it appeared to have a gun in his back pocket. Uh, at the crime scene, what was interesting is description with the ski mask on, and in the backyard, at the side of the backyard where Brian was shot, we found shoelaces that obviously had just come out of the package. They were still had the new kinks in them, but they were tied in such a fashion as to uh, make like a pair of loops or, or bindings. That was interesting in that we had, the county had been suffered from a whole series of rapes called the East Area Rapists. And the signature of this particular rapist was that he wore a ski mask. He used new shoelaces to bind his victims. And in some cases had even confronted male and female victims outside of a residence and ordered them back in at gunpoint. So we had that going for us, but we had a lot of suspects that developed uh, initially. Brian worked in the uh, administrative part of the security police at Mather, and he, I, one of his jobs was to take care of uh, like all the tickets and the traffic situation on the on the base. Katie worked at the local gas station and had been bothered by a couple, uh, at least one individual. We had other several good suspects that surfaced initially. Uh, there was a security guard who worked in the area who that night carried a similar kind of gun that was responsible, uh, had, was very unusual behavior following that night. His wife said he had locked himself in his room for like two days. Uh, there were several other Air Force males that were in the area, many who fit the description, but uh, as we kept going and going, none of these came to fruition. The first witness who was actually next door to the, the scene where the, they were murdered was coming out of his house and saw an individual run from the area of the bushes about where uh, Katie was behind those bushes and fence and was shot. That is probably the 
most viable sighting, and that individual was wearing the ski mask. Also had, uh, again, the light brown jacket, and there was uh, witnesses throughout the whole area who were seeing this a young guy running, had a jacket on. Some had the two colored stripes on the shoulders, others uh, military patches. But basically it sounded like he was wearing a, at least a, a waist-length, probably brown leather jacket. In the days following the murders, police released sketches of what appeared to be two different men. Weeks later, they revised the sketches and settled on one single man that they were looking for. But over the years, this has led to some confusion and speculation that there may have been two different gunmen involved. We didn't have any evidence or information that from the very outset, from the scene, that there was any more than just one gunman. And we were, and why there's two sketches, I'm not sure. One of the possibilities that's been mentioned over the years is that the Majoris knew their shooter. And that might explain just why the killer went out of his way to kill Katie after shooting Brian. That was one theory, that why. But it also is why target him in the open, in a, you know, in a residential area, right on the street somewhere where other people are present. Uh, did he actually know him? Uh, we were never able to determine with the why. And what the strongest evidence led towards maybe the East Area Rapist. And I say maybe, because up to that point, there had been a whole series of rapes, but uh, no one had been shot or injured in any serious way. And what was interesting is after this case, there was only one more case that was attributed to East Area Rapist, and that was in the city of Sacramento. We asked Ray how long he worked the Missouri case. Right up until 1993, along with other ones that we tried to solve. And then there were other uh, detectives occasionally who had picked the case up and continued to work, and that's why there is additional information that uh, even see that's new to me, actually. We wanted to know if Ray and other detectives considered a possible connection to the East Area Rapist at the time of the murders. Initially, I didn't even think of it until... I was told I'm not the one who found the, uh, the shoelaces. The ski mask, you know, I was kind of suspicious about that because I was aware of the East Area Rapist. But then the, the shoelaces kind of really uh, made it sound like a very viable lead. That this is what it could be. But we continued on all the other avenues, and there were many. Uh, it was a very high-profile case close to the Air Force Base. And the fact that these were just uh, a young couple... And there was nothing in her background that could explain why anybody would target them. Ray looked at hundreds of suspects during his handling of the Missouri case. He told us about his favorite. The security guard at first looked really good because he worked that area. And uh, it was an individual who had been suspected and arrested for other rapes, a couple rapes. Nothing similar to the East Area, but... Here was a guy who was a suspected rapist, worked that area, had real unusual behavior that night, and he was worked really hard, but uh, and even carried the right kind of gun, and as far as I know, the gun did not compare. As Ray mentioned, 
He retired in 1993, and other detectives would inherit the Medjori case. Along the way, theories, confusion, and general misinformation have plagued the Medjori murders. Rumors of Brian being silenced because he was involved in bringing down a military drug ring have been mentioned. A mysterious man who is supposed to give Brian and Katie CB lessons on the night of their murders has been discussed. But perhaps the most confusion has been in the several witness accounts following the shooting, which led to multiple sketches being released to the public. For years, investigators of the majority murders debated amongst themselves whether or not the East Area Rapist was responsible for the murders. The pre-tied shoelaces found at the crime scene was something that was held back from the public for a long time. In June of 2016, to mark the 40-year anniversary of the first confirmed East Area Rapist attack, investigators in Sacramento held a press conference with the FBI in attendance where they officially linked the Missouri murders to the East Area Rapist. If you look at the image uh, on the far left, uh, that will be the image that's going to be on the billboards. That comes from a 1978 murder of Brian and Katie Maggiore, which has been attributed to the East Area Rapist. Uh, essentially, Brian and Katie were out walking their dog uh, in Ranch Cordova and uh, were confronted by an individual uh, that, uh, through uh, basically an MO link, uh, we know to be the East Area Rapist, at which point he chased them into a backyard and he shot and killed both of them uh, on that day. So our best uh, uh, sketch uh, comes from that particular case uh, and that's why we're releasing that one. Uh, this would have been what he uh, most likely looked like uh, back in uh, February of 1978 based on a, a number of witnesses that uh, saw this exchange in the early evening hours. Detective Sergeant Ken Clark of the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department is one of the investigators who inherited the Missouri case, and he joined us to try and clear up some of the confusing aspects. In this lengthy and very detailed segment, Ken told us why investigators are confident that the East Area Rapists murdered the Missouris. So it's a pretty long segment, but it's loaded with valuable information about the Missouri murders and the ties to the East Area Rapist. Well, the case had uh, been worked over the years uh, by successive uh, detectives that were in the Homicide Bureau. And it had, by the time I got there, just had a pretty refreshed look in 2001 when the DNA uh, was matched between the Northern California rape series known as the East Area Rapist and the Southern California uh, murder series known as the original Night Stalker. They had gone through and looked at it at that time and done some collating of files as a lot of stuff had gotten separated over the years and they'd requested full copies of uh, uh, reports related to the East Area Rapist investigation. and. Uh, homicide files are kept in homicide, so those were in much better condition uh, than uh, the East Area Rapist files, which had kind of been, unfortunately, spread around a little bit uh, within the department. Um, they were initially investigated by our Sexual Assault Bureau and uh, ended up coming over to homicide as a result of the uh, the murders and uh, there were some other, other places they went because allied agencies obviously had cases as well. Um, so it was there when I first arrived, but it was not... Um, it needed some organization, uh, and it needed to be uh, checked to make sure that we had everything. Um, the main issue we had was that you don't know what you don't have. So you, you go through a case, and you're not really sure uh, if you've gotten all the documentation. 
and that was the case with uh, with this particular case. I had to do some rounding up of things, and it is a process that took some years because of the, just the nature of a 40-year-plus investigation. Probably started all of this uh, in early 2006. I was uh, finishing up the training process in 2005. I had my, my plate pretty full with homicides, but I had pulled it, and then um, not too long after, I want to say, uh, uh, I just started reading it, and there was a lead that came in related to the Maggiore case, and it was a, a fingerprint, and I was able to uh, research that fingerprint, and it immediately piqued my interest. Obviously, first you, you first get to a case, and all of a sudden there's a fingerprint hit, and there hadn't been one for 20 years, you can imagine. I was pretty excited. And then it, come to find out it was an innocently left fingerprint by somebody who we already knew had had access to one of the uh, uh, areas that were fingerprinted. So uh, for in that respect, it was a, a lead that just kind of, if you will, got me started. And I was able to resolve it within a couple of days. And then from there, it was uh, I was off to the races. Well, I, I can't speak for all of the original investigators because there were a lot of people that, uh, that worked on this case. And uh, uh, Inspector and then uh, Lieutenant Ray Biondi had uh, probably the first initial uh, you know, investigative uh, portion of it. And there was a lot of detectives working uh, on his team that also were working on it. And uh, they probably you know, had, their, had many theories on what they thought or didn't think uh, was involved here. I contacted uh, many of them early on to get their take on the case. In my reading of it, and I close read it a couple times, uh, being able to look back over the entire 40-year investigation as it stood, I had developed some of my, my own opinions, and, but I wanted to hear from them. And what I received was somewhat mixed. I got some people who were pretty, uh, obviously pretty certain back then that the East Area Rapist was probably the culprit. And there were others that thought now, in hindsight, in retrospect, after clearing out all of the leads that they did work, that you know that there was clearly a chance the East Area Rapist was responsible, but they weren't as certain back then. And then there was uh, uh, investigators that, that just didn't know. Uh, very few... Uh, certainly indicated that they absolutely thought that the East Area Rapist was not involved. Uh, but there was, you know, individuals that, that had varying opinions on whether he was or wasn't, with some very strongly that he was and some not as strong. And I, I could, if I could step back just a little bit, um, we we actually did a uh, program. It was one of the first that we'd ever been asked to do in the modern era uh, by a, a show called THS Investigates. And a man by the name of Todd Lindsay had uh, come out and interviewed us about that case and about the East Area Rapist series in general. And we, in, I want to say it was 2008, but I'm sure it's easy to research when that uh, program came out on THS Investigates. But in any event, that was, I believe, the first time we um, publicly linked it in the modern era uh, to the possible uh, series. So... If you go back and look at that, there's there's quite a bit of uh, talk about the links, and that was, I believe, the first time we also uh, publicly acknowledged the uh, finding of shoelaces in the backyard where the murders occurred that were pre-tied. There's the, the MO links in the Maggiore case are numerous, and that was probably a very strong one, and it was one that uh, many of the officers and detectives that were first on scene had noted and uh, was definitely of interest to them. Uh, to me, it was of interest because uh, just the 
the rarity of a pre-tied shoelace being found anywhere. I mean, they're simply not something you see lying around, uh, especially in the, <laughs> the backyard of a murder suspect where the suspect emerges on the other side with a ski mask on. So that was a fairly uh, telling clue to me. And though there had probably been talk in the media, and there, I know there had been talk about bindings of victims and uh, various things, it seems like the presence of pre-tied shoelaces uh, was just a bit too much to ignore for me. And I re- when I researched the knot that was used, it also was pretty clear that it was the knot that was favored by the offender uh, we know as East Area Rapist, and he had used it most commonly. And the, there was a couple dozen or at least 20 events where he had used that, that very knot. So um, that was a unique uh, M.O., trait to me, but there were many others as well. One witness saw him with the ski mask, and I believe that was released during the time period, but uh, we will be re-releasing it, uh, and by the time this airs, it may well have already been released. But at this, in any event, there was several sketches done of people who thought the offender was uh, running through the area. Um, and they had seen individuals that they felt uh, were behaving oddly or in some way had something with them, in one case a handgun that you know, obviously alerted them that this was not a normal uh, person in the neighborhood. So we did get different sketches from people along the route of his egress from that crime scene. There were also some uh, sketches done prior to the crime scene. I should say it was a Sketches done by an individual who saw the, the, uh, a couple subjects prior to the crime scene. And in the subsequent days of the investigation, though it took quite a while, uh, she did identify an individual, uh, a young girl, 11 years old. She identified an individual that was uh, a match for one of the composites that she had done. And then she ended up... Uh, having looked at about 80 photos before she made that ID. So it wasn't like she was picking the first guy she saw. She she was uh, patient and uh, seemed very earnest to find the person she thought it was, and she picked somebody. When detectives uh, went back, they had looked at statements, they had taken statements, and the individual that she selected had made a statement uh, indicating that he was in the area uh, at the time, and would have been passing very likely through that area, uh, though he doesn't mention that street specifically, it is on the route that he would have taken to get from his residence, which was at the time on La Loma Drive, uh, south of Folsom Boulevard, I'm sorry, north of Folsom Boulevard, uh, to the uh, Cordova Meadows School grounds and what is now Taylor Park um, on West La Loma. And... He is with a second person uh, per the statements we received, and that second person also confirms uh, the story. Neither of these two individuals was very familiar with the street names in the Rancho Cordova area. So when you read the statements, um, you have to drill down a bit because there's some confusion based on the street names they give. But they wind up at the same destination, which is Cordova Meadows Park or Cordova Meadows School. Um, and Taylor Park uh, to the west end of the school. And if you look at the streets that they actually say they traveled on, uh, it would have put them in a different place. And the area, even that they say they came back to their apartment, is that from Cordova Meadows Park. 
So some of that confusion, I think, is what led to the two-suspect theory, I call it, uh, continuing to kind of breathe, you know, be alive. So that lead itself, in my mind, was adequately cleared. Uh, you have each subject admitting they were present uh, in the neighborhood, and that particular area would have been the exact area we would expect that they would have uh, traversed. Also, uh, the young girl who saw them reported that they were walking from east to west uh, towards West La Loma, and she saw them at a point about mid-block on La Gloria Drive, and she last saw them essentially at La Gloria Drive and West La Loma with a slight uh, uh, trip to the north for that, from that location, you would be at Cordova Meadows School and Taylor Park, which is where they said they were heading. Both of those men said that by the time they reached the park, and to give some perspective, the, the girl said that it was about three to five minutes prior to when she heard the shots fired that she'd seen these two men. Uh, she described them uh, disappearing at the corner, as I said, of West Loma and La Gloria, but then the men say that when they reached the park is when they first heard shots. And they walked around the perimeter uh, of the park to the north and came back down, uh, met up with uh, Las Casas Drive, and then down back to La Loma, where they said that when they arrived on La Loma, headed to their apartment, they saw the uh, ambulance that had just arrived, which was there very quickly in response to the shootings. Uh, so the two suspects being seen together only occurred one time. And those individuals were eliminated, though from their statements, it's not clear that all of the individuals that were investigating the case were able to see right away that the explanation for these men being on the street, as described by the 11-year-old, was indeed these two men. To add to that, um, the individuals that were uh, in the neighborhood and seen uh, there to the north, when the shots get fired, the first we see see of the suspect um, is he's alone. And so he is in the backyard of a residence on La Gloria Drive. We don't know how Brian and Katie came to be in that yard. And there's many theories about that, but their dog ended up in a swimming pool in that yard. And it was a small dog, a, a poodle. So when Brian and Katie end up uh, leaving that yard, they're witnessed uh, moving through that yard by a resident who is in an upstairs window, and he gets a pretty good look at at least the activity going on. And the subjects are running through the yard, and they end up going through a section of blown-down fence. Apparently, there have been some storms, and the fence between uh, the backyard of the home on La Gloria and the backyard of the home to the south on La Alegria Drive um, was, it was traversable just with, that, with walking directly over it because the fence was completely blown down. So the witness from the upstairs sees the subjects, uh, all of them in the yard, the two clearly fleeing to try and get away from the man. And he just describes the man as being a, a dark figure, a figure in dark clothing. Uh, he doesn't indicate whether he, he has no features of any of these subjects, but he hears the woman screaming. When the first shots are fired, he actually sees the, the muzzle flashes. Uh, the male uh, falls towards the patio area, and he can see this. And then he sees the, the arm of the offender uh, extended, and it looks like he fires again at the male subject, probably while on the ground. Uh, though from the distance, it was difficult for him to see, and again, it was dark. He then saw the offender run around the uh, east side of the residence, which was the 
portion of the residence where there was a, a locked gate and a uh, fireplace. Um, the, the brick, the outside portion on the house of a fireplace. Katie, we know, uh, try, was unable to get over the fence in time, and the male subject uh, shot her, and she unfortunately passed away, uh, as did Brian. Both were transported, but neither one of them made it. The male subject is seen for the first time outside that yard uh, jumping over that fence. And at the time that he goes over the fence, uh, he has a bit of a tr- uh, trouble because he's, he's uh, caught in some bushes. So a witness that is three houses away to the uh, west hears the commotion, uh, heard the first shots fired, exits its ho- his home, is standing in his driveway, and then hears the, the next volley of shots, which is the shots we believe uh, killed Katie. And then he hears the subject uh, wrestling around in these bushes. The subject writes himself, and the first our uh, witness becomes aware of him visually is a, a man wearing a ski mask, a dark brown leather coat with uh, possibly you know uh, jeans or similar kind of pants, and then shoes that don't make noise, is running down the sidewalk to the west, passes the one residence uh, that is next to the yard that he had jumped into, uh, if you will, or jumped out of and then into the front yard area. And then he ends up running up on the common area between the two homes onto the lawn, gets to uh, probably about 20 uh, to 25 feet from the witness. And then he immediately changes direction, runs across the street, and then onto uh, onto the side yard of a home that's on the uh, south side of La Alegria Drive. Uh, that home, uh, or he is seen running along that side yard by the residents across the street, one of whom made a statement in the past, uh, in the crime report, but was unaware of anything other than the suspect ran across the street after seeing the witness. I spoke to another resident uh, within the last few weeks that was on the uh, other, that was in the house, and she said the suspect ran right by the window on the side yard, and she saw his shadow, and then she heard him hit the fence in the backyard. Very consistent with the next witness. So the witness that sees him jump the fence from the yard that I just mentioned sees him emerge onto Capitalis Drive. She sees him running, and he runs right past her and then heads towards the intersection of Capitalis and West Loma. She describes him as uh, wearing a like a ski type coat, um, some you know a, a heavier coat with uh, epaulets or some kind of different coloring on the uh, top portion. She thought the color might be green, and then uh, she just said that he had a, a pistol, uh, looked like a revolver to her with wooden handles, in his uh, back pocket. And then he continued running, and he shielded his face from her and with his arm and jacket and then uh, ran on to um, the next street over. And I, I forget the name of the street, but he uh, continues up towards Las Casas where he is then seen by other people. And some of the residents see him with the uh, an object in his hand that appears to be made of cloth but about the size of a football. Uh, and this is a point of conjecture here, but I think that could have been the, the handgun uh, wrapped in 
the ski mask uh, because, again, once he emerged out of the yard uh, where he had run off of La Alegria onto Capitalis, he no longer has that ski mask on. So my thoughts on that, you probably don't want to be running around a neighborhood with a ski mask on once you've gotten out of the immediate hot zone. So that's speculation on my part, but uh, makes sense that that would draw more attention once you're away from the primary crime scene than you would want to do. He continues up and he ends up on Las Casas up near where it turns into, I believe it's Las Palos. And he is seen by several subjects there. And one of them, he slows down and he kind of comes out from behind a bush after hiding for a little bit, probably checking his six, so to speak, and looking behind to see if anyone's following him and realizing nobody is. And he's been running for a while, so he's probably got a little bit of a, need a little breather. And he realizes he's been seen because there's a male and a female, and he immediately rips his jacket up over his face so he can't be seen and makes the comment, oh, excuse me, I'm trespassing, Um, which if you follow this case, uh, our, our offender seems to, to like phrases like that. He, he says odd things. I mean, that's an odd thing to say when you are a criminal that's running from a double murder. So that is the last sighting of him. And then he is, uh, is gone. The, the descriptions were somewhat different uh, or some are similar, but they had uh, differences, some subtle, but the, the reality is that as long as I've been doing this job as a homicide detective and I've had no less than probably 200 cases that I've worked in, in the time period since I've been here, um, witnesses frequently disagree on details. They, they're operating from a frame of reference. They're operating from a vantage point that may differ from a different witness. Uh, they have different experiences in life, different experiences with, uh, what they see and how to describe it. Uh, you have to deal with the, the person who's questioning them may introduce some, some bias unintentionally. They may ask them a question that, that leads them to think of something else or answer in a certain way. Things that they say can be misinterpreted. So it, it really can, is not something that we typically hang our hat on these um, slight differences in description. And in this case, it's no different. The, the general uh, offender description remains the same. But the most important thing about the description is only one man is seen in the yard shooting Brian and Katie. Only one man is seen coming over the fence after that shooting with a ski mask on. And only one man is seen running through that neighborhood for his life after committing this double murder. There are no two men, and there never was. And that is something that I think hampered this investigation and made... Uh, this case more difficult to solve because the two suspects uh, were put out into the media and and rightfully so because that's the best information they had in the portion of the investigation when you had to do these kind of releases. But unfortunately, it took a long time. Many, many photos shown to the young girl who saw two men together. uh, Many interviews to do and and really it was a period of of many weeks before they were able to um, come to the information that when interpreted holistically leads you to believe that the two individuals that were seen by the young girl had nothing to do with this. And so one man is seen fleeing that scene and one and only one man was ever involved in my opinion. The, the origin of that sketch was a woman who had seen uh, the offender 
uh, reported what she told uh, or what she had seen uh, to the sheriff's department, but it was about a month later or a little bit more. So I don't believe that uh, the reasoning, I, I don't think she fully knew what she had seen until seeing some of the coverage. And she believed that she had seen the man based on everything that she was um, advised. So she had an idea on the description of this man and then associated the event that she saw with him. She apparently got a clear look at him per her statement as he was uh, moving past her house and he was unaware of her presence because of where she was standing in her yard. So she got a bit of an unguarded look at him until uh, he was out, you know, realized that, that she was there. And then, of course, he started taking some countermeasures. But uh, we think that, or looking at the report, it appears as though they um, felt that since so few people had gotten a look at this guy's face, that she got the best look. Uh, some of the other sketches were, were individuals that were uh, seen in the area, but not as directly associated with the crime, because as I said, all the witnesses that were on record, uh, he's covering his face and doing other things. They're only able to make out the most general of features, such as uh, height and weight and, and that kind of thing. And when they did release that sketch, um, I want to note that, that he had not hit Sacramento Sheriff's uh, patrol jurisdiction since the murders. So though he was completely driven uh, out of town or appears to have left town by mid-April of 1978, uh, he had already left uh, Sacramento Sheriff's Department jurisdiction. Um, his next, next attack was a Stockton attack uh, uh, following the Maggiore double murder. And then the attack following that and the last for the, the county at all was in uh, the pocket area of Sacramento, which is a place he had never hit before and uh, isn't really close at all to sheriff's jurisdiction. So uh, he was already showing uh, different patterns of stalking and attacks at the very night of the attack on the Maggiores. And so to me, I do think the sketch being released may have been a triggering thing, but we don't know which sketch because he's already changing uh, his behavior as a result of the double shooting. And the stakes were high. You know, he, he he may or may not have killed before this event, uh, but this event was a double murder, and that's a very serious thing. So whatever he had done before, uh, though horrific, paled in comparison to this double murder, and he probably was well aware that all the resources that were already coming to catch him, uh, now you can add to that uh, an entire Bureau of Homicide Detectives and numerous other officers that support the homicide unit. So I'm sure he realized that the stakes just went higher. But the, the Air Force uh, police, uh, security police and, and such on Mather uh, was the unit that Brian worked. And so our detectives spent a lot of time on the base uh, working with them and certainly the, the higher-ups the, uh, on the base to try to figure out if somebody that might have worked with Brian uh, you know, could have been involved or had information about it. So their initial role with us was mostly cooperation because the, uh, uh, the murders took place, though of ser a service member and his wife took place off-base, and so they didn't have a jurisdiction over that crime, the local agency did. Uh, they worked with us very closely during that time period, as best as I can tell based on the reports, and uh, it was a, a cooperative relationship. I know that in, in recent uh, years, uh, the Air Force's OSI, or I believe that's what it's called, uh, Special Investigation Office, uh, 
kind of took a look at this case and uh, realized that you know it was an unsolved murder of a military uh, uh, person off base, and so they came and uh, offered some uh, support and some additional documents that that they didn't know if we did or didn't have, and so we had a couple of meetings with them and uh, they. Um, worked a couple of the angles that had to do with things going on and uh, the base itself. I'd like to talk a little bit too with the, uh, you know, the Maggiore murder about some of the incidents and activities going on in uh, the neighborhood right around where they lived on Laverta Court um, that also increase, in my mind, the uh, probability uh, that these cases are, are linked. Um, at the time period that, that Brian and, and Katie were killed, there had been a an absence of activity uh, following the summer of '77 in the Rancho Cordova area. Uh, it, it was though I think there was still small scale things going on. There had not been a rape there since I believe uh, uh, the 15th rape of the series or uh, around there. And in a couple weeks to a month that led up to uh, the murder, uh, there are documented in the report itself and i also found other reports uh in the crime period or i'm sorry in the crimes uh associated with it in that area um several other cases and uh including laverta court itself there was a young female that lived there that had been receiving hang-up calls uh, every night for a week prior to the murders uh the person would say nothing and then hang up these calls all occurred at the same time which was 8 p.m um there has been no calls since the night of the murder to this woman. Then uh, she also didn't get a call the night of the murder. On the, uh, in the 2700 block of La Loma Drive, uh, there was a young couple living there, and they'd moved in in the fall of 77. At night, they were suffering some significant prowler activity, and they actually had a burglary in the late winter. So it would be just a, a, maybe a month or so before the murders uh, in 1977. Uh, in that burglary, undergarments that had belonged to the wife uh, had been taken. They also found throughout the entire period around Christmas that the gates and doors of their uh, residence uh, were open. And they had this whole thing had led them to think someone had been uh, entering their home, but they never found anything missing. We get over to the 2600 block of Capitalist Drive, which is, you know, so far as you can see, these are streets that I've discussed as an area of egress for our suspect. And in that block of Capitalis, there's a young female that resided there and said that she had prowler activity for a steady two weeks before the murder and was receiving many phone calls where the caller would say absolutely nothing and then hung up. Uh, in the 2700 block of Toro Court, which is a very nearby court, uh, there's a 25-year-old female that experienced extremely heavy prowler, prowler problems. And these were going on just a little over a month before the murders and continued uh, up to the point of the murder. She had found shoe prints outside her bedroom window and made police reports about it. Uh, her gate was constantly being left open. And that is a trait. Everything I'm mentioning, uh, people familiar with the case will know, were what we would consider EAR activity. And she had this going on uh, all the time in the month prior to these murders. Um, she would try to secure the, the gate, and the person, whoever it was, would actually damage the gate to gain entry. So you try to fix the gate, and he just goes right through it or damages it in such a way that he can still use it. And then most interestingly, she uh, in the areas where she had found shoe prints 
uh, under the windows. She also found drawings on one of the windows uh, beneath where she had found footprints. I'm sorry, above where she'd found footprints. And the, um, the drawings were uh, in bodily fluids. And I'll leave it at that. Um, I spoke to her and interviewed her myself and confirmed this. Uh, in the 2600 block of Sobrante Drive, which is also right there within a couple of blocks of the murder scene, there was a married couple in their early 20s, and they reported that they had suffered a burglary about four months before the murder with nothing taken, and they had seen an unusual subject in their backyard more recently. Uh, also in the 2600 block of uh, Sobrante, there was a male in his 20s and a couple of female roommates in their 20s that had heavy prowler activity throughout the summer of 77, and they had had numerous phone calls of a hang-up nature received since that time uh, up to the murder. Uh, going back to the 2600 block of Capitalis Drive again, a married couple in the early 20s reported that beginning a week prior to the murder, hang-up phone calls where the caller would say nothing and disconnect were going on constantly. In the 10,000 block of El Torlito Drive, a female in her 30s was suffering a nighttime burglary three nights before the murder where nothing was taken. Uh, she wasn't home at the time, so it's not a cat burglary, but it was yet a nighttime burglary where she had been out and returned, both uh, leaving and coming after, after dark. Uh, back to the 2500 block of Capitales. Uh, I'm sorry, that I just read that one. No, no, I'm sorry. 2500 block of Capitales, a female in, the 20, in her 20s, uh, suffered another nighttime attempted burglary on the night of the murder. Uh, the entry uh, was thwarted to the sliding glass door because she had a secondary security device that kept the door from opening. She also had a lot of prowler activity in the area. And in the uh, most interestingly to me, in the uh, 10100 block of La Gloria Drive, um, house right across the street from where the suspect and victims initially were in or encountered one another, a female in her late 30s and other females in the home reported numerous suspicious hang-up phone calls in the one week prior to the murder. Uh, they received all these calls at 8 o'clock at night. Caller would say nothing, just remain on the phone briefly and then disconnect. They got the final call from whomever was making those calls on the night of the murder at 8 o'clock in the evening, just a little over an hour before Brian and Katie were killed. So those events seem, are, are indicative to me of EAR activity. And those are all going on in the time period immediately preceding those two murders. Uh, so I think that that is something that, that can't be overlooked. In addition, uh, you know, Katie uh, Maggiore had worked at the Regal gas station on Folsom Boulevard, and she reported uh, a stalker. Uh, she had reported that a male in a blue uh, VW bug um, would park across the street from her and on Folsom Boulevard and just watch her. He did it for a couple of hours and did it several times, and then one time she finally went to confront him, and she uh, walked across the street. But before she could get all the way across Folsom Boulevard to confront him, he drove off. She goes back to the business, and in a couple of hours, he'd returned to the location again and watched her. Uh, she quit her job two weeks after that stalking event. Um, her and the coworker also were receiving phone calls from an unknown male at the business, and the person would simply say, your turn is coming. A couple of the other workers had received uh, phone calls from another male, unknown if it's this male or not, uh, describing the rapes that had been occurring at other uh, gas stations and asking what they knew about them. Um, it was odd to them. And then, of course, after, uh, after Katie passed, was murdered, um, these things kind of, you know, started taking on a different uh, possible meaning. So I think uh, that's pretty much it for the Maggiore case. But it, it is 
it is possible again that because Katie had reported that she'd picked up this stalker and it was going on and it did scare her and you know that that's always opened up a possibility for me that that Brian you know may, either she may have recognized the individual because she had seen him uh, and maybe pointed him out to Brian so he's not even there for Katie on that particular night but maybe he's in the neighborhood doing something he's not supposed to do. And at about 9 p.m., that was a prowling peep time for him and maybe a berg time, but not usually a rape time. Um, so maybe he was doing some of those uh, prowl peep type activities um, and Katie recognized him or said something to Brian. Uh, hey, Brian, I've been telling you about that guy. There he is. Well, Brian being uh, everything we heard about him and uh, his not just his protectiveness of Katie, but the fact that he was a base policeman would probably have confronted and, and tried to at least identify uh, the man for referral or whatever he was going to do. Um, so that is a possibility. It's one of many. I mean, I've, I've entertained several uh, related to how that could have uh, ended up in a confrontation in the backyard of a house that neither uh, none of the parties involved in the confrontation lived. But that's, a, that's something that I had considered. At the time period, the CB radio uh, craze was pretty pretty prolific and a lot of people were doing that and Brian and Katie had apparently become interested in it and had uh, met some of the CBers and uh, had been talking to a couple of them about providing you know some instruction and kind of you know how to work the radios and how to do that kind of stuff and it does appear that that uh, when this happened that they were um, going to be meeting with uh, an individual who was going to help them uh, and that individual was interviewed and um, I'm pretty confident in the initial uh, exclusion they did not feel he was involved in the investigation and there's other subjects that were kind of involved in that as well that were actually closer friends of theirs that came up over the normal course of the investigation and then the CB uh, angle was mentioned in their interviews as well. One interesting thing that recently came to light was that Brian and Katie, before moving to their apartment on La Verda Court in 1978, had lived at 10680 Coloma Road. This was across the street from the 7-Eleven where the botched 1977 stakeout occurred. Katie Majori's brother knew the apartment well, and he remembered the 7-Eleven. I went and spent the summer with them, you know, at times. So I'm, I'm well aware of that apartment. It was an upstairs apartment right there on Coloma Road. The fact that a man suspected of being the East Area Rapist frequented the 7-Eleven across the street from Brian and Katie's old apartment opens up some interesting possibilities. One of which is that they may have known the East Area Rapist from their time on Coloma Road, and perhaps he could have been one of their neighbors. If they caught him out prowling in the neighborhood and recognized him, it could explain the need for him to make sure that both Brian and Katie were dead. But the most accepted police theory is that Brian, being an Air Force police officer, may have confronted the East Area Rapist when he spotted him prowling and that Brian and Katie were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Wherever the answer lies... It seems as if the stalking, prowling, and rapes that had plagued the eastern portion of Sacramento for so long ended with the Majori murders. The East Area Rapist wouldn't turn up again for over a month, and when he did, it would shock everyone when he struck back in the city of Stockton. On March 18, 1978, police officer Sergeant Tom Spivey was on patrol in the city of Stockton. It had been six months since the East Area Rapist had struck there. But Stockton police were on high alert. 
knowing that there had not been another attack in Sacramento County in a month, Stockton police, they didn't want to take any chances that the East Area Rapists would come back to their city. Stockton had their own East Area Rapist Task Force. We started what we called the East Area Rapist Task Force, and we had people on uh, stakeout, uh, really undercover, the, the, a re- real term of that. I mean, under tarps and stuff, uh, in backyards where they could look around the lake with binoculars and see if anybody was walking because no backyard, no, uh, excuse me, no, no fences in the backyard of these homes. And uh, that was going on for quite some time. And my involvement was I wasn't involved in that. I was a patrol sergeant, so we were running shifts, about 50 or so guys on a, on a shift, guys and, and, and gals. And um, so as time went by, I was thinking about, well, if he's ever going to hit here in, in, in Stockton again, where would be a, a likely spot he would, he would uh, show up? Because he probably knows this task force is out there, and he would maybe avoid that. So I just, in my mind, just on my own, I came up with the idea that if he came back to Stockton, commit a crime, or he lived here, who, who knew back then? And I thought he might go to an area of town called Park Woods, an older area of town, um, affluent area of older homes, tree-lined, and very close to Interstate 5 and the major boulevards in Stockton to, to make an escape. So I started uh, knowing I didn't have uh, 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 beat responsibility because I was the, the – the North Sergeant at the time, so I could go anywhere I wanted to go. I started just patrolling around in this area, this affluent area where we never had a police car, hardly ever. And I was doing that night after night after night for two, three hours when I could, and then the next night. So this particular night, we did have another attack, and it happened to be exactly in that area of town. And I had been driving around that area for probably two hours and had the kill lights on the car, you know, using those so there was no, no brake lights, no, no lighting of any kind, and just coasting along. I remember the night was very still. Uh, Might have been a little, little bit of haze in, in the air, maybe a little fog, as I recall, but it was very still. I could hear dogs barking. I could hear everything. The windows were all down because you're listening to see if you're going to come up with anything. And I was going along and driving around, and I had been down the particular street where this attack occurred, I'll, I'll bet, 20 times that night, because it's a small area of town. And I was, had pulled over and was sitting there with the engine still running, idling, with the windows down, listening for any noise of a car starting or somebody walking or, you know, we had... Sacramento thought maybe he came to the scene of these crimes on a bicycle, that type of thing. Tom decided to park on the 1600 block of Meadow Avenue and watch the area. It was after 2 a.m. And got a radio call. And the radio call was just that we think there's been an attack, gave out the address, and right where I am parked, I am parked in front of that house. And I jumped out of the car. We had a big kill light, flashlights you put under your arm back in those days. And I started towards the house trying to find a, 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 an entry point, and I immediately saw that the side gate, which hadn't been more than 30 feet from me, the side gate was ajar. It was more than ajar. It was open a couple of feet. 
And I figured that was the way I would, that, that he probably went in or came out and I would go in that way. And I did. And, you know, I'm sweating at this point because I'm thinking I might be right on top of this guy. He might be leaving and I might confront him. But unfortunately or fortunately, uh, I didn't. When I got in the backyard with the flashlight, I was looking around. I saw that the, the glass slider into the dining room area, as I recall, was open. So that was my entry point. And as I came into the house, it's pitch black, and I'm, I'm just moving very slowly and very cautiously to see what we've got. And uh, I, was, I started calling out, is anybody here? And I heard the female victim say, back here, we're back here. So I made my way to where they were. Uh, I don't think I turned any lights on, which is kind of odd right now when I look back on it, but I was so fixated on, on what was surrounding me and where I was going in the house that I don't believe I did. But anyway, I did get in the, into the area, a bedroom area where the voice was coming from, and sure enough, there was a male and a female. They were tied back to back on the bed. Um, I, I, as I recall, it was like a shoelace material, or very similar to shoelace that they that she was uh, tied to this man. And uh, I remember having the presence of mind to not cut the, I mean, to not untie the, the knot, but to cut it loose so that maybe the knot would be important. And she related to me at that point. Of course, immediately I asked her if she could describe this guy, and she couldn't. Uh, it was all happening too quick with a light in her eye and all this thing. But I put out what we had to the, the cars that were responding to that area. And... Uh, she related to me that they were woken in bed with this man, uh, shining a light in their, in their face, that he had taken charge immediately and uh, had had her tie the, the male up, tied him up, and then moved her to another location where he laid her on the, uh, in the hallway, laid her down and put um, uh, um, dishes and, and that type of thing on top of her with the idea, of course, if she started moving, the dishes would fall off and she would, he would know it. And then he made sure he had him tied up and they did move him to another location in the house and did the same thing with, with dishes on him. And then subsequently he, he did uh, uh, forcibly rape the, the woman. And um, it was very, uh, the story she told me, she said that he laid her down after he, he raped her. He laid her down in another spot in the house, put his hand on her and was just sitting there. And she said he he removed his hand and he got up and walked away. And she said, I, I waited about, she said 15 minutes, but it was probably like five. And she said, I started to move and he, he just put his hand on me again. He had left where he was seated with next to her, gone out into some other part of the house, come back. And she never felt him come back. It was just, she, she said it was just so frightening. And so, you know, later on, as we, as, as we had detectives arrive at the scene and, and it was going to get light pretty soon, so we had a chance to look around. We found in the backyard, in the planting bed, there were footprints where he would, was facing the window and he would move sideways. That's how the footprints were, were lined up. And this particular house, they had removed their window coverings and to have them sent out to be cleaned. So there was no, there was no uh, drapes or anything like that on the window. So um, the detectives believe that he probably came in the backyard, spent some time there looking around, looking through the windows and whatnot, waited for them to go to sleep, and then made his entry into the house. Very, very uh, 
uh, it was very frightening to them. It was a, a very, very eerie experience for them. But one of the things that was really interesting to me was we found that he had gone out on the front porch. Now, that's the front, the porch facing the street that I had been parked in at one point and consumed uh, two or three cans of beer from their refrigerator. So apparently what he had done is he had gone outside after he tied them up at some point to kind of see what's going on, anything to worry about. And he probably saw me drive by two or three times. And then I, I suspect he, when I, by the time I parked, he probably had already left because they had to get loose enough to, to make a phone call. But uh, he was in and out as, as quick as he, could, as he could be and as quietly as he could be. And I remember thinking back, I didn't hear a car engine. I didn't hear anybody running. I didn't hear a motorcycle, uh, nothing. He just disappeared. As soon as I was able to get a description, which I, there was a very low description, male, 20s, I think early 20s, as I recall, she said. Uh, but she didn't get a really good look at him, and, and the, the man didn't either. Uh, but as soon as we had that out and knew that other units were responding, no, you know, right off the bat, nobody needed to come to the house. I was already at the house. It was, they were going to uh, work the area. But as they did that for probably a half hour just if anybody was moving, then the next step would be to start canvassing the neighborhood. Did anybody see anything? Did anybody hear anything? Was anybody prowling in the backyard? Did your dogs bark? That type of thing. But it was a dead end. I mean, it was, it was, he was like a ghost. Once the detectives were on scene, they were able to question the two victims, the 24-year-old woman who was a sales manager and her 29-year-old boyfriend, an attorney. The pair told the investigators that the intruder had woke them up at about 1 a.m. The woman described the rapist as being in his 20s, about 5'10 and 160 pounds. She said that he had a small pot belly and a very small penis that was no more than three inches erect. But the 29-year-old boyfriend gave a slightly different description of the attacker. He estimated him to be about six foot one and thin, but both said that the man wore a black ski mask that covered his entire face. The victims recounted that the attacker had carried a flashlight in his left hand and a gun in his right that the attacker told them was a 357. The attacker's MO was the same as most East Area rapist attacks. He gained control, told them he only wanted money and food, and then bound the victim's hands behind their back before separating them and raping the female victim. During the sexual attack, he called the woman by her first name. He also said something to her that stood out during the rape, which was, this is how me fuck. When the assailant talked to the male victim, he said, if I hear these dishes, then I'm going to kill your girlfriend. So the attacker knew that the pair was not married. The victims told police that only three days before, there had been a prowler in their yard and they also relayed that there had been a prowler in their yard in the month of January and the month of February as well. And in the weeks leading up to the attack, they had come home to find that the locks on their doors were damaged. Additionally, they had been receiving phone calls where someone asked for people that did not live in the home and the couple just assumed it was someone calling a wrong number. The victims determined that their attacker had stolen cash, jewelry, and the female victim's driver's license. When police questioned neighbors, 
they discovered that several had information about odd events in the area prior to the attack. One woman reported seeing cars that didn't belong in the neighborhood parked in front of her house during the overnight hours. These included a faded VW van and a green Ford. The same faded van was reported driving slowly through the neighborhood. The driver was described as white male in his early 20s with blonde hair. Just two days before the attack, a woman on that street received a phone call from a man who asked her if she would talk to him while he masturbated. And just 45 minutes before the attack, another neighbor woke up to see a man trying to open her sliding glass door. She quickly woke up her husband, but when they investigated, the person was gone. It's so frustrating to see all of these warning signs leading up to the attacks and see so many missed opportunities. And I have to ask, why is no one calling the police during all of these incidents? Only 45 minutes before this attack, people wake up to somebody trying to get in their home and they don't call police? That's the frustrating part about this case. Yeah, I agree with you more. If it's it's frustrating, you know, when we talk about these attacks, but then also talk about all of the different things that happened in an area leading up to the attack, even sometimes on the same night as the attack, just so many missed opportunities. I don't know how else to say it, but I think this is a good spot to wrap up episode seven and we'll pick it back up next week. In episode eight, the East Area Rapist is going to be on the move again. He's going to find new cities to terrorize. If you want to support the show, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash criminology. And if you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Criminology Pod or on Facebook by searching Criminology Podcast. You can also join our Facebook discussion group called Criminology podcast discussion and fans. And if you like the show, please take a minute to go out and rate and review it on iTunes. That definitely helps us out. And we've had a lot of great feedback about the season and the case. And we've had some really nice voicemails. If you'd like to give us a shout, you can leave us a voicemail by calling 661-77-CRIME. We may play your voicemail on the air. And we'd like to leave you with a promo for a new podcast called Hoax. We mentioned it earlier in the episode. It's hosted by one of our friends, Michael, who also hosts the true crime podcast, Unresolved. The word hoax has become incredibly popular in modern culture. Donald thinks that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. It was all a hoax. It was later deemed a hoax. It seems like every day you hear this word mentioned on the news. Someone claiming that accusations levied against them are lies, intended to deceive the public at large. Most of the time, these claims are themselves created from nothing, an unwillingness to accept the reality of the world. All of this with the global warming and that, a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? It's a hoax. This has led to the word, hoax, beginning to lose all of its original meaning. In Hoax, an unresolved podcast production, I will examine a number of these stories, exploring not only the hoax itself, but the people involved and their consequences. As it is in life, some of these stories will be more lighthearted, while others 
not so much. If you want to hear the first three episodes as soon as they drop, you can subscribe now on your podcast app of choice. You can also follow along with the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. It can be found at HoaxPod on both. This will allow you to learn any updates for the podcast, such as how many episodes the first season will contain and some of the expected story subjects. If you want to get in touch with the podcast outside of social media, you could send in your emails to hoaxpod at gmail.com. Stay tuned, everyone. And remember, never stop asking questions.